Welcome, listeners, to Jane Eyre Public Access Read Along with Womance. I am Isabeau. I'll be reading the even chapters. And I'm Morgan, and I read the odd chapters, which means today I get to be a listener, just like you, except with greater immediacy and influence over the reading. (laughs) True story. Flavor, as it is called. I'm the color commentator for the even chapters. We are indeed at chapter eight. Morgan, would you be so kind as to remind us what happened in chapter seven? Yes, in chapter seven, Jane is at Lowood School. It's fucking cold. And Brocklehurst shows up. He arrives back in town and Jane is eavesdropping and she accidentally drops her slate and breaks it and is punished by Brocklehurst. He also announces to the whole school that she's possessed by the devil per her godmother's missives and he puts her up on a stool. We discover Brocklehurst is a stocking perv, S-T-O-C-K-I-N-G. We also learn some of the hypocrisies in his behavior. His wife and daughters arrive in their fancy beaver hats to watch Jane be publicly chastised. And we also get a deepening of the friendship between Jane and her friend Helen Burns because Helen gives her a little smile while she's up on her stool of infamy standing in front of everyone for half an hour. Jane has resolved that she is not a Helen Burns, though, at this point. She has come to that realization of self. (laughs) She's a little rage factory, that one. Without further ado, Chapter 8. Ere the half hour ended, five o'clock struck, school was dismissed, and all were gone into the refectory to tea. I now ventured to descend. It was deep dusk. I retired into a corner and sat down on the floor. The spell by which I had been so far supported began to dissolve. Reaction took place, and soon, so overwhelming was the grief that seized me, I sank prostrate with my face to the ground. Now I wept. Helen Burns was not here. Nothing sustained me. Left to myself, I abandoned myself, and my tears watered the boards. I had meant to be so good, and to do so much at Lowood, to make so many friends, to earn respect and win affection. Already I had made visible progress. That very morning I had reached the head of my class. Miss Miller had praised me warmly. Miss Temple had smiled approbation. She had promised to teach me drawing and to let me learn French. I continued to make similar improvement two months longer, and then I was well received by my fellow pupils, treated as an equal by those of my own age, and not molested by any. Now, here I lay again, crushed and trodden on, and could I never rise more? Never, I thought, and ardently wished I die. While sobbing out this wish in broken accents, someone approached. I started up again. Helen Burns was near me. The fading fires just showed her coming up the long, vacant room. She brought my coffee and bread. I want to point out that at the beginning of Chapter 7, we did not hear anything positive about her experience at Lowood School. And now she's like, everything was going great until this exact moment. Which is like, you don't know how bad it is until it gets worse, I guess. (laughs) Or how good it is until it gets worse. So true. You fall through that floor. Come eat something, she said. But I put both away from me, feeling as if a drop (laughs) or a crumb would have choked me in my present condition. Helen regarded me, probably with surprise. I could not now abate my agitation, though I tried hard. I continued to weep aloud. She sat down on the ground near me, embraced her knees with her arms, and rested her head upon them. In the attitude, she remained silent as an Indian. I was the first who spoke. Helen, why do you stay with a girl whom everybody believes to be a liar? Everybody, Jane? Compliment me, Helen. Compliment me. (laughs) Assuage my pain. Everybody, Jane? 
why there are only 80 people who have heard you called so, and the world contains hundreds of millions. But what have I to do with millions? The 80 I know despise me. Jane, you are mistaken. Probably not one in the school either despises or dislikes you. Many, I am sure, pity you much. That's even worse. <laughs> I know, I'm like, that's cold comfort, Helen. How can they pity me after what Mr. Brocklehurst said? Mr. Brocklehurst is not a god, nor is he even a great and admired man. He is little liked here, and he never took steps to make himself liked. Had he treated you as an especial favorite, you would have found enemies, declared or covert, all around you. As it is, the greater number would offer you sympathy if they dared. Teachers and pupils may look coldly on you for a day or two, but friendly feelings are concealed in their hearts, and if you persevere in doing well, these feelings will long appear so much the more evidently for their temporary suppression. Besides, Jane, she paused. Well, Helen, said I, putting my hand into hers, she chafed my fingers gently to warm them and went on. If all the world hated you and believed you wicked, well, your own conscience approved you and absolved you from guilt, you would not be without friends. No, I know I should think well of myself. This is not enough. If others don't love me, I would rather die than live. I cannot bear to be solitary and hated, Helen. Look here, to gain some real affection from you or Miss Temple or any other whom I truly love, I would willingly submit to have the bone of my arm broken or to let a bull toss me or to stand behind a kicking horse and let it dash its hoof at my chest. Hush, Jane, you think too much of the love of human beings. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm super with Jane in this. This is the thing, like, these characters, like, the Helen Brocklehurst dichotomy is so fucking flat. Helen is boring. Also, like, that person who, like, when you have a bad day and you want to talk shit on somebody and they're like, I'm sure they're cool. And it's like, that's not why I came here, Helen. But the book is like, isn't she great? It also reminds me of whenever <laughs> those people post on Facebook that their child said something really deep that, like, no child has ever said before. I like it when parents post things that their creepy children say, like, I love you so much. I want to consume your face. That's the kind of stuff that kids say all the time. And that's what I want to see more of on social media. But yeah, Helen is a saint and a martyr here, which by virtue of both of those appellations is usually pretty boring. Spoiler alert for <laughs> important reasons. She's not going to get any deeper. Mm hmm. Hush, Jane. You think too much of the love of human beings. You are too impulsive, too vehement. The sovereign hand that created your frame and put life into it has provided you with other resources than your feeble self, or than creatures feeble as you. Besides this earth and besides the race of men, there is an invisible world and a kingdom of spirits. That world is around us, for it is everywhere, and those spirits watch us, for they are commissioned to guard us. And if we were dying in pain and shame, if scorn smote us on all sides and hatred crushed us, angels see our tortures, recognize our innocence, if innocent we be, as I know you are of this charge which Mr. Brocklehurst has weakly and pompously repeated at second hand from Mrs. Reed, for I read a sincere nature in your ardent eyes and your clear front. And God waits only the separation of spirit from flesh to crown us with a full reward. Why then should we ever sink overwhelmed with distress, when life is so soon over and death is so certain an entrance to happiness to glory i will say it's not that she's wrong 
she's a beautiful nihilist. But it's just that she like, you know, when someone's upset, they don't want to hear like, this is your own fault. Of course, you can only control how you react to the world and you have no control over the outside world. But like, can we just skip to the Brocklehurst being a dick stuff? Here's where I stand on Helen in this moment. She's not a good friend, nor is she a good character. (laughs) She is a strange foil for our protagonist. I will say that because I agree. I think the text is like, saying that the comforts that Helen is talking about are like meager at best and also unattainable until one is literally dead. Yeah. So like, what kind of comfort is that on the cold floor of this classroom? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, it kind of speaks to like the problem of reading this because we both read it and now we're reading it out loud to each other again. And it's like knowing things get better in our estimation or should we take this as it comes to us the second time chapter by chapter and just be like, what's going on? Like, oh, is this book just super in love with dying i don't know i don't know that's actually a really good question i want to like file that away and like this christian ethos and pathos yeah something you think about helen just kind of she just kind of sucks she's gonna get hers though she's a bit of a drip i was silent helen had calmed me but in the tranquility she imparted there was an alloy of inexpressible sadness I felt the impression of woe as she spoke, but I could not tell whence it came, and when, having done speaking, she breathed a little fast and coughed a short cough. I momentarily forgot my own sorrows to yield to a vague concern for her. (laughs) Resting my head on Helen's shoulder, I put my arms around her waist. She drew me to her, and we reposed in silence. We had not sat long thus when another person came in. Some heavy clouds swept from the sky by a rising wind had left the moon bare, and her light streaming in through a window near shone full both on us and on the approaching figure which we at once recognized as miss temple i came on purpose to find you jane eyre she said i want you in my room and as helen burns is with you she may come too we went following the superintendent's guidance we had to thread some intricate passages and mount a staircase before we reached the apartment it contained a good fire and looked cheerful miss temple told helen burns to be seated in a low armchair on one side of the hearth and herself taking another she called me to her side is it all over she asked looking down at my face have you cried your grief away i'm afraid i shall never do that why because i have been wrongly accused and you ma'am and everybody else will now think me wicked we shall think you what you prove yourself to be my child continue to act as a good girl and you will satisfy me shall i miss temple you will said she passing her arm around me and now tell me who is the lady whom mr brocklehurst called your benefactress mrs reed my uncle's wife my uncle is dead and he left me to her care did she not then adopt you of her own accord no ma'am she was sorry to have to do it but my uncle as i have often heard the servants say got her to promise before he died that she would always keep me jane you ought to be more careful with that tea lowood school can't afford any more spills Well, now, Jane, you know, or at least I will tell you, that when a criminal is accused, he is always allowed to speak in his own defense. You have been charged with falsehood. Defend yourself to me as well as you can. Say whatever your memory suggests is true, but add nothing and exaggerate nothing. Oh, Miss Temple. She's perfectly capable of that. (laughs) I resolved in the depth of my heart that I would be most moderate, (laughs) most correct. And having reflected a few minutes in order to arrange coherently what I had to say, I told her all the story of my sad childhood. Exhausted by emotion, my language was more subdued than it generally was when it developed that sad theme. And mindful of Helen's warnings against the indulgence of resentment, I infused into the narrative far less of gall and wormwood than ordinary. Oh, (laughs) self-aware. 
she's learning. Thus, I restrained and simplified. It sounded more credible. I felt as I went on that Miss Temple fully believed me. In the course of the tale, I had mentioned Mr. Lloyd as having come to see me after the fit, for I never forgot the, to me, frightful episode in the Red Room, in detailing which my excitement was sure in some degree to break bounds, for nothing could soften in my recollection the spasm of agony which clutched my heart when Mrs. Reed spurned my wild supplication for pardon and locked me a second time in the dark and haunted chamber. I had finished. Miss Temple regarded me a few minutes in silence. She then said, I know something of Mr. Lloyd. I shall write to him. If his reply agrees with your statement, you shall be publicly cleared from imputation. To me, Jane, you are clear now. She kissed me, and still keeping me at her side, where I was well contented to stand, for I derived a child's pleasure from the contemplation of her face, her dress, her one or two ornaments, her white forehead, her clustered and shining curls, and beaming dark eyes. All of this is in parenthetical. She proceeded to address Helen Burns. How are you tonight, Helen? Have you coughed much today? Not quite so much, I think, ma'am. And the pain in your chest? It is a little better. Miss Temple got up, took her hand, and examined her pulse. Then she returned to her own seat. As she resumed it, I heard her sigh low. She was pensive a few minutes, then rousing herself, she said cheerfully, But you two are my visitors tonight. I must treat you as such. She rang her bell. Barbara, she said to the servant who answered it, I have not yet had tea. Bring the tray and place cups for these two young ladies. And a tray was soon brought. How pretty to my eyes did the china cups and bright teapot look placed on the little round table near the fire. How fragrant was the steam of the beverage and the scent of the toast, of which, however, I, to my dismay, for I was beginning to be hungry, discerned only a very small portion. Miss Temple discerned it too. Barbara, said she, can you not bring a little more bread and butter? There is not enough for Barbara went out and returned soon. Madam, Miss Harden says she has sent up the usual quantity. Miss Harden, be it observed, was the housekeeper, a woman after Miss Brocklehurst's own heart, made up of equal parts whalebone and iron. And a total snitch. Very well, returned Miss Temple. We must make it do, Barbara, I suppose. And as the girl withdrew, she added, smiling, fortunately, I have in my power to supply deficiencies for this once. Having invited Helen and me to approach the table and placed before each of us a cup of tea with one delicious but thin morsel of toast, she got up, unlocked a drawer, and taking from it a parcel wrapped in paper, disclosed presently to her eyes a good-sized seed cake. I meant to give each of you some of this to take with you, said she, but as there is so little toast, you must have it now, and she proceeded to cut slices with a generous hand. We feasted that evening as on nectar and ambrosia, and not the least delight of the entertainment was the smile of gratification with which our hostess regarded us as she satisfied our famished appetites on the delicate fare she liberally supplied. Over and the tray removed, she again summoned us to the fire. We sat one on each side of her, and now a conversation followed between her and Helen, which it was indeed a privilege to be admitted to hear. Miss Temple had always something of serenity in her air, of state in her mien, of refined propriety in her language, which precluded deviation into the ardent, the excited, the eager, something of which chastened the pleasure of those who looked on her and listened to her by a controlling sense of awe. And such was my feeling now. But as to Helen Burns, I was struck with wonder. 
The refreshing meal, the brilliant fire, the presence and kindness of her beloved instructress are perhaps more than all these. Something in her own unique mind had roused her powers within her. They awoke, they kindled. First they glowed in the light tint of her cheek, which till this hour I had never seen but pale and bloodless. Then they shone in her liquid luster of her eyes, which had suddenly acquired a beauty more singular than that of Miss Temple's. A beauty neither of fine color nor long lash nor penciled brow, but of meaning, of movement, of radiance. Then her soul sat on her lips and language flowed from what source I cannot tell. Has a girl of 14 a heart large enough, vigorous enough to hold the swelling spring of pure, full, fervid eloquence? Such was the characteristic of Helen's discourse on that to me memorable evening. Her spirit seemed hastening to live within a very brief span, as much as many live during a protracted existence. They conversed of things I had never heard of, of nations, times past, of countries far away, of secrets of nature discovered or guessed at. They spoke of books, how many they had read, what stores of knowledge they possessed. Then they seemed so familiar with French names and French authors, but my amazement reached its climax when Miss Temple asked Helen if she sometimes snatched a moment to recall the Latin her father had taught her, and taking a book from a shelf, bade her read and construe a page of Virgil. And Helen obeyed, my organ of veneration expanding at every sounding line. She had scarcely finished ere the bell announced bedtime. No delay could be admitted. Miss Temple embraced us both, saying as she drew us to her heart, God bless you, my children. Helen, she held a little longer than me. She let her go more reluctantly. It was Helen her eye followed to the door. It was for her she had a second time breathed a sad sigh, for she wiped a tear from her cheek. On reaching the bedroom, we heard the voice of Miss Scatcherd. She was examining drawers. She just pulled out Helen Burns. And when we entered, Helen was greeted with a sharp reprimand and told that tomorrow she would have a half dozen of untidily folded articles pinned to her shoulder. My things were indeed in shameful disorder, murmured Helen to me in a low voice. I intended to have arranged them, but I forgot. Next morning, Miss Scatcherd wrote in conspicuous characters on a piece of pasteboard the word slattern. Oh my god. She's so mean. <laughs> slattern, jeez, um, okay. Shame lives big at Lowood and bound it like a phylactery round Helen's large, mild, intelligent, and benign-looking forehead. Do you know what a phylactery is? No idea. What is it? A small leather box containing Hebrew texts on vellum, worn by Jewish men at morning prayer as a reminder to keep the law. Oh, so we have seen them before. Just did not know they were called phylactery. She has the word slattern tied around her forehead. For the whole day. She wore it till evening, patient, unresentful, regarding it as a deserved punishment. The moment Miss Scatcherd withdrew after afternoon school, I ran to Helen, tore it off, and thrust it into the fire. The fury of which she was was incapable had been burning in my soul all day, and tears, hot and large, had continually been scalding my cheek. For the spectacle of her sad resignation gave me an intolerable pain at the heart. About a week subsequently to the incidents above narrated, Miss Temple, who had written to Mr. Lloyd, received his answer. It appeared that what he said went to corroborate my account. Miss Temple, having assembled the whole school, announced that inquiry had been made into the charges alleged against Jane Eyre, and that she was most happy to be able to pronounce her completely cleared from every imputation. The teachers then shook hands with me and kissed me and a murmur of pleasure ran through the ranks of my companions. 
Thus, relieved of a grievous load, I, from that hour, set to work afresh, resolved to pioneer my way through every difficulty. I toiled hard, and my success was proportionate to my efforts. My memory, not naturally tenacious, improved with practice. Mm -hmm. Exercise sharpened my wits. In a few weeks, I was promoted to a higher class. In less than two months, I was allowed to commence French and drawing. I learned the first two tenses of the verb être, and sketched my first cottage, whose walls, by the by, outrivaled in slope those of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. On the same day, that night, on going to bed, I forgot to prepare in imagination the barmecide supper of hot roast potatoes and white bread and new milk, with which I was wont to amuse my inward cravings. I feasted instead on the spectacle of idle drawings, which I saw in the dark, all the work of my own hands, freely penciled, houses and trees, picturesque rocks and ruins, kip-like, groups of cattle, sweet paintings of butterflies hovering over overblown roses, of birds picking at ripe cherries, of wren's nests enclosing pearl-like eggs, wreathed about with young ivy sprays. I examined too and thought the possibility of my ever being able to translate currently a certain little French storybook which Madame Pierrot had the day shown me, nor was that problem solved to my satisfaction ere I fell sweetly asleep. Well has Solomon said, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. I would not now have exchanged Lowood all its privations for Gateshead and its daily luxuries. A Barmecide Supper is a reference to the Arabian Nights, in which there was an imaginary feast, mm. just for the sake of our listeners. Albert Quip is a Dutch landscape painter of the 17th century, and currently meant fluently. So when she says, my ever being able to translate currently, she means fluently. It's so funny how language has evolved. It is. Well, what can we say? Short little chapter. Everybody loves Helen. Everybody loves Helen. To go back to our discussion, also that question of like, how should we read this? Mm -hmm. And also thinking about the first edition that I saw of this book, it was, you know, advertised as an autobiography edited by Kerr Bell. Mm -hmm. Just think how pissed Oprah would have been on uncovering it was a work (laughs) of fiction by Kerr Bell, who was actually Charlotte Bronte. But if we take this as an autobiography, like we tend to like have pretty flat understandings of the world when we're children. And so any of our memories tend to be flat, especially if we like leave those people entirely behind in our in our adulthood. And so maybe that's why Helen and Brocklehurst are so lame, not lame, but like they're not very rich. Mm -hmm. I think that is probably part of it, right? Like, obviously, Helen is going to come to an untimely end. Everyone should be able to sense that from uh, chapter eight. Her little coughs. Also, Miss Temple, like, wiping tears from her eyes. Like, Helen's not long for the world. Well, thank God she got a piece of Latin to translate in her last days. (laughs) And that seed cake. But I think, like, the innocent death and, like, how burning bright her goodness is. I think it's right that we laughed. I think it's also right that it's wearying because it's wearying on Jane. You know, like when she has to wear the thing that's a slattern on her forehead, like Jane tears it off her forehead and throws it in the fire and is like crying at her because she's so upset about what she was forced to endure. Jane is internalizing neither version of this ideology. She likes to be around Helen because Helen's nice to her. And she, I think, sees more utility and value in the way that Helen is functioning. But like, it's clear that she still hates Miss Scatcherd. And it's clear that she feels the injustice of Helen's treatment fiercely. And I like, I wonder what that means that we have two flat characters with ideologies work in similar ways and that Jane internalizes neither. 
I think this is a query we won't be able to solve until the final act of the novel, which is some 30 chapters away. <laughs> Buckle up, buttercups. We got some places to go. Any other thoughts on this chapter? I have one. I think about the most recent film adaptation with Michael Fassbender, which includes the scene mm. of her being chastised on the stool, but doesn't include the scene of resolution after. It instead cuts to her like happily saying goodbye to Lowood and that she's going to miss it. It feels like a real shortcoming. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. But maybe not. Like, I don't know. Do we need to understand Jane as having found comfort in Lowood in order to understand, you know, the real story that's coming up. And also, do you think Charlotte Bronte knew that she was going to write this story of Mr. Rochester as she was writing the story of Lowood? Do you think she saw Rochester? Or do you think she just wrote as she wrote and like whatever came out, came out? Because this is very, this part of the book is so memoir-like. Wild supposition on my part. I think we are always meant to get to Rochester. I think we're always meant to get to Thornfield. I think like this probably came later and helps us understand Jane's actions in the latter volume. Hmm. I don't know that it's super important that we understand that Jane's happy at Lowood, but I do think it's important that we understand how she gets allies and thinks about other people because that's really important for the latter half of the book, right? Her ability to sort of like have her own desires, but then like put it into a conversation with the actions and desires of others. And then she like constantly weighs how to like function through that. And not just with Rochester, but also with like his housekeeper and others. Eventually with Sinjin and his sisters. That's who I'm thinking of specifically. Like, Sinjin feels like a real bookend for Lowood. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's good that we're we're at least speculating on, like, why Lowood and why does she need to be happy at Lowood? I think it is a worthwhile question. And, like, why is the experience of Lowood so flattened compared to what's to come? I think we're kind of, like, vaguely flapping our hands at perhaps a larger question of... What is the central story of Jane Eyre? And is it a romance novel? <laughs> yeah? Is it? I think that's a question that like we should keep asking and keep pressing on, especially as we embark on the project of like, is Rochester the archetype? And like, why? Especially if this isn't a romance novel. I have to say it already kind of feels like one just in the relationship with Helen (laughs) falling in love with a rather flattened character. You know, female friendships tend to have this like level of closeness and intimacy and and expression that I think oftentimes whenever people adapt it for like film and television, it gets understood as like a a queer story. And maybe just like the existence of being a woman is inherently queer in a way that like (laughs) the existence of being a man isn't necessarily. I think that's actually actually a super good point and like especially for Helen but also for Miss Temple and I think like understanding those intimacies as having a valence of queerness is partly because they have to function in terms of like giving out these small comforts like that scene in Miss Temple's office feels like such a scene of her like casting her cloak around them to like comfort and protect them from like this awful thing that has happened today and that kind of envelopment Mm, yes exactly you know what I mean like there's something I can see why it often reads as potentially queer especially in film because it's hard to translate what that envelopment feels yeah feels 
I think if we're talking about like a cishet man adapting, which is what usually <laughs> happens in these situations, like that kind of feeling of envelopment, which I think is the exact right word, I worry about them and I think they really only experience in romantic relationships, you know, which is sad and a real shortcoming in their existence. And I think like there are scenes in like boy boarding school stories where they like go to the headmaster's office and it turns out he's a chill guy. There's like a feeling of like camaraderie, but there's not that that feeling of like for lack of a better word love right and that like warmth and I think of Low Woods as a dark candlelit office with cakes and tea and I don't think of that when I think of like a boys school cis men can like pick up on like the texture of something mysterious to them happening betwixt women and then they're just like it's queer and maybe it is I don't know. I think you're right to say texture, but like the thing especially about this book, but also I think romance novels can do really admirably is like it can give like full spectrum light to the intimacies of female friendships and like how complicated and nourishing they ostensibly have to be to deal with misogyny and patriarchy and just like the small batterings that like come with like being a person in the world who is not the most privileged in in the hierarchy and it's like it's all the small things and like that's why I think the fact that Jane Eyre's organ of veneration expands to its fullest content when she has like the two women who function as protectors, as mentors, as people who actively express their affection for her physically as well as verbally and are like finally delivering on any of Jane's love languages. And I think that the feeling feels almost romantic like it could take a queer turn and that wouldn't be a surprise is because it's like finally fulfilling this empty need that's just been yawning for so long and i think you know perhaps we're also missing something about the male gaze's presence yeah and how much they love to see two women kiss and so anytime there's I think you're right, 100%. But it's also, it's like, well, it has to be romantic, doesn't it? Like, how many kinds of love are there? Or like, right, right. How many versions of love function in a life? And it's like, well, it's a lot more than two. And I think that is like an idea around queerness is that there's a lot more than two types of love. And if that's the case, then yes, women's really, because of our relationships with each other, we're much more inherently queered than the male experience, the masculine experience. Because there's something there. Mm -hmm. And I think if there's something there, and it has been so like filtered through the male gaze so much of the time, that it's really worth extracting. It's not that they did it injustice, right? It's not that injustice was done to the relationship. It was presented in a way that is legible to people who have been in it. That's interesting to me because it's the idea of like interpretation being part of the writing of something or the creation of it. I read recently a piece on interpretations of Shirley Jackson books. We're still in the spooky season as we're recording this. And that idea of like all horror is female horror is feminine. All horror is feminine. And this article, which was actually on Jezebel, was talking about how adaptations of Shirley Jackson just seem to miss like the most obvious and central idea of fear, which is loneliness for Shirley for the texts, which is so true. Like, yes, of course loneliness is the main problem i haven't seen the adaptation of we have always lived in the castle but i guess it ends with like the sisters being
being like very in love and both very happy with their choice to just like live in the destroyed house together which is very different from the ending of the book and I think really demonstrates that when men read like a story of a horror that centers around women they're like yes it's scary because women are scary and I think by the same token they're like this feels romantic because women are sexy romantic you know as opposed to like the possibility that like this idea of fear is way more granular or this idea of love is way more granular in the feminine experience I too read that article and was very moved by it especially as it was talking about the two sisters I need to revisit The Haunting of Hill House I watched it too quickly the first time through and I just finished The Haunting of Bly Manor and like this idea that women are scary and that's why it's scary and that women are inherently sexy and that's why this is sexy and then like the monstrous and sexual become part of the thing that is like infecting yeah we are two things we are frightening and we are sexy but it's really just the one thing (laughs) right I think that's exactly right. I think interpretations of Shirley Jackson do that thing where it's like, it's a misread. I mean, still spooky, still interesting. It's a flattening. I thought The Haunting of Hill House was like a really interesting adaptation and it, and I think kind of scratched something close because it was talking about family. Mm-hmm. But it really did like miss the totality of like the self-destruction at the end of the novel for something that might not even exist. They can't relate. Or the fact that like every time we're motivated to do something, it's because we were raped or someone was raped, which is another idea of combining that monstrosity and sexuality. Yeah, totally. Or that like men are only made into vigilantes Mm. or heroes because the women that they love were murdered or raped. I just feel so bad for them now that I'm talking about it. I'm like, do they feel all those things? Like, I'm just going to look at men and just be like, do you get this? Do you get to have this? Of all the things you've taken away from us, systemically do you miss out on this part and I still want my systemic stuff uh yeah but I think maybe the exchange would be like we'll let you have this like full spectrum of feeling and relationship and connection as people say misogyny doesn't just hurt women (laughs) yeah maybe because the things that hurt men are so ethereal it's easier for them to be like I'm fine and and I have rights more rights Mm -hmm. they don't feel motivated but they should because god any men listening right now you've been fucked over you just need a warm cape of envelopment that is all the versions of love bro have you even been enveloped bro bruh (laughs) bruh Bruh. have you even been enveloped broseph i'm enveloping and enveloped Not very often right now, but like three to five times a week. Used to be more than that. Used to be way more than that. Used to have fleeting moments at a coffee machine of envelopment. Mm Mm-hmm. So anyways, ladies, we hope that you felt enveloped by this episode. Gentlemen, we know that you didn't because you're not capable yet, but keep on trying. Keep trucking, just like Jane Eyre at Lowood. (laughs) Turn to your internal resources, find your Helen Burns, eat your seed cake. Mm -hmm. Uh, And with that, we'll see you next week with chapter nine.